Hello, welcome to Loud in the Words, the podcast that's about ideas that improve lives. I'm Jules Pretty. In this episode, we're talking about corporate governance that works, how companies and businesses in emerging economies, large and small, are finding new processes, standards and principles, how accounting matters and how it can improve ways of working and living. I'm delighted to welcome our two guests today, Tevan Subar-Owen of the Essex Business School and Danson Kimani, also of the Essex Business School, here at the University of Essex. Welcome. So let's start with this. The American poet Emily Dickinson, quite a recluse, uh, wrote, tell all the truth, but tell it slant. Um, so you've both worked in many emerging economies. Um, you've seen where corporate governance works and where it doesn't work and how it's changed over time. Um, tell us a bit about the big picture um, and how we can tell it slant. In other words, how can the world can be made a better place when thinking about accounting? So, Tevin, do you want to start? Yes. Thank you. Thank you, Jules, for the for the opportunity. So, yeah, I mean, it's a good point about about. Uh, governance. I think. I think when we talk of corporate governance, we we might want to talk about how it was or, or it has been for many many years, particularly coming from a sort of uh, Western um, developed country perspective. So everything was shareholder centric. Everything was focusing on the board of directors as a watchdog, but a watchdog for shareholders. Uh, procedure driven focusing on protecting financial investments uh, and board members very much uh, to playing to the bidding of the owners, playing to the bidding and not very not very independent, not very diverse. So I think one of the big changes that we've seen and we are seeing in, in, in developing countries and emerging economies is, is the idea of a, a new form of corporate governance and new ideas about how we run the corporation for the greater a uh, uh, set of community. That, that's, I think, the very interesting um, aspect of it. Yeah, yeah. good. Thanks. Danson. All right. Uh, thank you very much. Um, uh, to add to, um, I mean, the uh, points that my colleague has made. So we're seeing the world moving increasingly from sort of the corporate governance 1.0 to corporate governance 2.0, where um, there's uh, an increasing appreciation that uh, there are more stakeholders that matter and that support the success of an organization uh, beyond the shareholders. So we're seeing uh, boards in uh, companies uh, increasingly focusing their attention to matters of excuse me, um, employee welfare, uh, the working conditions of employees. And uh, in some cases, um, uh, for instance, in Kenya, uh, there has been uh, a company which has been uh, the first in sub-Saharan Africa to form a board a committee focusing on human rights. And uh, the, the work of the mandate of the uh, committee has actually be, been aligned with UN guiding principles on business and human rights to ensure that uh, their employees work in safe conditions, they are paid uh, a decent living wage, and that uh, the, the organization is also able to relate well with uh, the community around it and support uh, such communities. Very interesting. So you've kind of opened it up a little bit here. Well, actually, quite a lot. I mean, you know, rather than the narrow benefits of a particular group of individuals when it comes to thinking about business and corporations, you're you're opening up to something much bigger, which is a really interesting territory. Um, so, Tevin, you've you're the current president of the 
British Accounting and Finance Association, past president of African Africa's Accounting and Finance Association. Danson, as you've just mentioned just there, you've worked with businesses um, across Malawi, Rwanda, Uganda, Kenya, as you've just mentioned there. So, so what are we seeing then from that kind of experience? If I can take it a little bit further, I like this contrast of, of kind of 1.0 or the old mm-hmm. and what's coming with the new. And if the new is opening up rights for workers, maybe the environment, maybe for consumers, maybe thinking about business and corporate governance in a quite a different way yeah i agree i mean i think there's a, there's a sort of first i mean it's not just coming from i mean it's coming from the emerging economies because now i think in many ways emerging economies in africa and various countries have realized we have to come up with our own ideas here our own ways of proceeding on this you know african you know the african union has come up with principles of corporate governance for example uh, different countries have said okay we now can we we were given one code of governance uh, by the World Bank many years ago. Now we want to develop our own. So it's a sort of realization that the solution is is at their level as opposed to being imposed. But it's not only, obviously, an emerging economy development. I mean, the financial crisis and, and everything has really revealed many deficiencies of the current structure in, in, in UK, in US and, and all of this. So as part of my uh, role as president of BAFA, I was involved with the British Academy, where they created the future of a corporate project. And with that came the idea of purpose, the idea that we need to now think of a shared purpose as an organization, where here, you need to have a, a, a purpose, the purpose not being making profit. I was about to say, so the you're, purpose you're, is you're not making profit. You're yeah. opening out from, yes, from, yes. from so, just so, money and so, profit. So yeah. finding solutions to problems profitably. Mm. That's, that's basically the idea of purpose from the British Academy. But that idea is not in itself novel. It's not in itself uh, German only to, 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 um, to, to the British Academy. I think it's everywhere I've realized that we need to think of something else um, as, a, as, a, as a central guiding principle of, yeah. of, of companies. Very interesting. So have you seen that kind of opening up as well, Danson, in, in, the, in the work that you've been doing, the opening up of priorities, purpose, I suppose, kind of signs of success. How would how would you measure what's working and what's not working? Uh, yes, um, I think uh, one uh, thing that is now coming up is that companies that um, I mean align the organizational strategy to uh, um, align with um, the expectations of uh, the communities, society where they're operating. Uh, I am increasingly. Um, um, believing or seeing uh, that uh, their customers uh, and other stakeholders tend to um, have a favorable view of uh, such organizations. And um, uh, if I can give an example of M-Pesa, which is now world uh, globally popular, uh, and which uh, at the moment uh, is the single largest revenue generator for Safaricom, which is uh, a telecoms company in Kenya. And uh, the essence of M-Pesa was, at least as far as they tell us, to you know bridge uh, or other um, deepen financial inclusion in a country where so many people uh, used to keep their money under the mattress and uh, lower the costs or, or business transactions. And uh, M-Pesa has got a very, I mean, simple, but I mean, in my view, very meaningful slogan of 
sending money home. And what uh, M-Pesa has done is that people no longer need to travel hundreds of uh, kilometers in Kenya to go and, you know, hand over uh, some small amounts to their grandmother or other people in the village. You can just transfer via M-Pesa. It's cheaper, it's quicker and safer because you don't have to go fearing that you'll be accosted by, you know, some bandits on the road road (laughs) and lose your money. And, And now we see... Uh, a classic example of a company uh, coming on board to um, uh, solve a problem, which is a problem of financial inclusion. People may not have time to go home, visit their relatives and give them money to eat and um, fill in that gap. So we're seeing businesses, as uh, my colleague Tiroven has said, uh, profiting from solving societal problems as opposed to um, creating problems in pursuit of profit. And I think that's uh, one of the most fascinating things about corporate governance. To Very interesting. Yeah. So um, and, and obviously... It, there's a role of technology here. It's opening up opportunities that weren't there beforehand. But let's stay on how people are thinking about that. I mean, there's the people running the businesses. Are they? Uh, I mean, they, there's a danger that people can adopt slogans and kind of you know wash over. You could greenwash if it's environmental or kind of some other energy wash. Perhaps these days, you know, where people say we're doing good stuff and actually you delve into it and you think, oh come on, you know, you're not really. So. So going beyond the kind of language that companies are using, do you find that people are expressing, uh, and by this I mean people in charge of whether it's small businesses or larger ones, are they expressing different values, different kind of moral positions, different um, kind of principles when they're thinking about purpose, as you mentioned, even and as you've described in that kind of way, get under the skin of this a little yeah. bit. Yeah, and it's, it's a much harder proposition that it looks like. I mean, you might say, oh, go go, go out and get me a strategy document or uh, <laughs> write me a strategy. Everyone is into that. But go out and get me a purpose is not that straightforward. So the, the evidence in, in the UK, for example, is that, um, you know, the um, uh, companies were asked to write their purpose statements. And the Financial Reporting Council wrote uh, a report and found that well, good 30, 30, 40 percent were not really, there were slogans, as you just mentioned, or uh, wishful thinking type of statements, you know, will do good for the better, you know. But so it does require some some thinking about this. And then more importantly, I think it requires feeding it through the whole process. So if a proce- the process of purpose is to improve the lives of individuals, for example, sending money home, for example, I mean, just the example of MPESA is pretty good, is, is to say, well, how does the board ensure that the management is day in, day out working towards purpose? How do we uh, appoint people on the board that will be buying into this purpose and ensuring that the, pur- the company remains true to this, these ideas? How do we reward employees and executives in a way that will pursue this purpose? Because there's no point having all style performance measurement systems that still gives a bonus if you make more profit if you have a purpose now on the other side it just you just keep pushing them apart uh, yeah yeah yeah, going going back into in time so that that's i think is 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 a difficult one and um, one thing we want to do just to conclude this point perhaps one thing we want to do with the uh, project we're doing with uh, kenyan state-owned enterprises is we realize that they have a code but the code is kind of not hanging on anything substantive. In you know, they are in in a sense providing delivering services to 
to a lot of people um, basic services, uh, important services, and yet they are having such, so many financial difficulties, so many governance difficulties. So we want to be able to introduce this idea uh, through what we call public value management, you know, trying to come up with some ideas to tell them to think, to develop that purpose, and, and hopefully give them that guiding principle uh, that they will decide, not, not us. Not, we're not going to impose anything, but decide what, what they're going to do with mm. it. Yeah. Well, I think that's fascinating because it is opening up. I mean, just just using the phrase "public value" yeah. in that sense is is suggesting that um, you've got structures within a country or a continent or the world as a whole that um, are, are there to provide services, but but they're also there to do something more. Mm. Um, mm. And and have we suffered from in the past separating what might be called kind of private? Businesses in the private sector with the public sector. The, on the one hand, one's supposed to only make money. On the other one, the, the other one is supposed to provide common goods, public goods. Mm-hmm. Actually, the truth is they should be doing both, really. They should be doing the best they can, but doing it with a stand, with a standpoint, with yeah. a purpose. Um, Danson, when you pick up a couple of other examples of where, they, where you've had that kind of broadening of purpose and public value um, from... from your experience from Africa in particular, if you want. All right. Uh, thank you. Um, so uh, with um, public value uh, thinking or understanding, uh, there is a shift in the way uh, businesses and especially uh, the uh, public sector organizations, that's the, the government-owned entities, are run. And uh, public value has also largely been informed by uh, a realization that uh, most of the uh, performance uh, targets that are set for managers in uh, public organizations are uh, sort of um, a bit narrow, uh, so to say, that they focus at the um, end of year results and the bottom line, whether the managers or the management has been able to turn around a profit for the organization. But uh, public value thinkers argue that there's a need to look beyond the profit that is turned at the end of the year to the bigger picture, and that is the purpose for which the organization was established uh, to do. So are there examples of how that public value has then worked with new forms of business? Oh, yes, indeed. Uh, So um, by uh, state uh, corporations uh, allocating 30% of uh, their tenders to uh, youth and women-owned businesses, they help to uplift and empower uh, smaller businesses within uh, their supply chains. And uh, so these are groups of people that have been traditionally uh, uh, overlooked uh, and and, and have not had an opportunity to uh, to grow or opportunity for growth. Uh, most of them tend to be locked out by the private sector and therefore by the state-owned uh, uh, corporations dedicating 30% of their tenders to women uh, and, and youth businesses, then they, they empower them to grow and possibly be able to employ more people in future. Very interesting. I mean, we, if we if we think elsewhere, I mean, the... the the revolution around microcredit in South Asia, mm. I mean, in particular, beginning with Grameen Bank in mm. Bangladesh, mm. helping women's groups, helping people save, helping to develop small businesses. Here you've got, if you've got a kind of a norm that's been established to encourage uh, uh, women's groups, women's businesses and youth groups to enter the stage um, uh, that was not only overlooked but possibly excluded in the past actively do, do you then see a kind of 
because people are bringing creative ideas, aren't they? Yes, um, yes. New things are beginning to happen. Is that what you kind of see when when more actors are brought in in that kind of way? Uh, absolutely, and and also I think it fits very well with the local context. Where, uh, for instance, majority of sub-Saharan African countries, Kenya included, uh, the the youth uh, comprise about seventy percent of the uh, total population, and therefore by allocating a certain procurement uh, of the corporations um, does indeed have a bigger impact on the wider country. Uh, again, studies show that women in sub-Saharan Africa are more likely to be self-employed than men, and uh, most of them may have limited education, which means they may not be able to uh, be able to participate in uh, formal uh, employment, and therefore that provides an opportunity to um, empower uh, such groups and um, in the long term uh, drive if a meaningful socioeconomic development. It's really interesting. So you begin by thinking about um, uh, something that looks narrow from the outside, like accounting practices, mm-hmm. and then governance. But actually, you end up with transforming society, as you've just said, yeah. um, uh, socioeconomic opportunities for women, for young people, uh, with all sorts of benefits, public benefits, as well as the individual mm. benefits coming down the line afterwards. Yeah. Is, I, that, is that kind of fair? Yeah, yeah. I, I think this is, I mean, to add to uh, very briefly to this, is, is Africa has been at the forefront of these things. I think this has been sometimes forgotten that, you know, South Africa came up with the integrated reporting, um, rare African kind of innovation that's now all over the world, you know, as, as a form of reporting from an organizational point of view. Also, they came up with a black economic empowerment. Now, there may be a lot of criticisms about it, but at least in terms of, because it was very, again, narrowly measured and, you know, based on different aspects like like procurement, like uh, giving uh, jobs to, uh, to, to, to black people because they were not, you know, trying to increase them in the management uh, cadre. So there, there was a, 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 quite a bit of it. Botswana is trying the same. Is trying to implement those sort of, uh, if you're setting up a business, you need to get someone locally to work with you as a small business and so on. So, so governments are, in a way, perhaps for political sometimes, responding to political pressures. But what we are saying here is that it's not better not wait for these political pressures. Better not wait for these political, which can be quite often, you know, having their own agendas. What I think is organizations, state-owned corporations, companies need to actually react to this now and say, well, it's time to rethink our relationship, even multinationals, it's time to rethink our relationship with a local sector, rethink our governance structure, rethink the leadership of a governance, of a boards, so that they can respond to these things. So we can't also have shared purpose, you know, or public value management, if we're now not going to obviously look at the elements of it in the organization. Who is going to be part of a board? Um, accounting information is still that important. I mean, accounting is, as you know, um, you know, uh, from the sort of research we do um, at SX, is, is, it covers a vast aspects of accounting. It's not just financial accounting, it's social environmental accounting, it's governance, it's all forms of, 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 of um, disclosure and transparency that we talk about. Mm. Um, and so if, putting that all together, you're describing in the... 2.0 model that you've mentioned, Danson, earlier on. Um, something that, that sounds um, uh, like it's a kind of whole set of exciting new developments that could help to transform opportunities for individuals who would sit outside formal, current formal 
sectors, whether private or public, opportunities for innovation and entrepreneurship and so forth. Um, uh, and, and that actually could take some of those economies faster and further than if they stayed with the old models. I mean, is that kind of fair to say? I mean, it's what it sounds like. Get in early on this wave and something new, really new and exciting could happen. Just to add to uh, that point, I, I think uh, the, the interesting, uh, again, development with this new uh, approach or thinking to corporate governance is that we're now uh, increasingly seeing uh, uh, boards of directors or corporations being interested in corporate governance practices beyond uh, their own organizations and that multinational organizations for instance are, are concerned about uh, the corporate governance practices and treatment of workers within their supply chains uh, wherever that is in the world and there have been I mean recent examples where for instance uh, something comes up that uh, a company in another part of the world has not been treating its workers very well. And then um, maybe what the customers or the buyers of those raw materials or products do is to stop um, buying products from uh, those suppliers until they uh, sort out their treatment of workers or treatment of employees. So, yeah, these increasing awareness of the impact of a corporations or organizations uh, activities beyond their own uh, internal uh, context or environment. Very interesting. So so we, in describing this kind of broadening of, of purpose and value and how it's leading to kind of change, uh, earlier on, Stephen, you were talking about the financial crash being a kind of moment mm. for, of, of encouragement of change. If we're looking at the the, the two years of the COVID pandemic and the shocks that come from that, the shocks that are coming in 2022 over energy, over energy sector um, across the world. Are these, I mean, these look like wholly problems to begin with. Mm -hmm. Certainly the financial crash in 2007-8 looks wholly like a problem. But then out of that kind of mess comes new energy for doing things differently. Do you, if you're looking forward, are you? Do, do you think? So I'm not asking you to predict how the world is going to be, <laughs> but I'm just wondering about can can some further good come from when you're defining purpose in the way that you have, and all the other detail of how you make that happen, board makeup, you know, kind of uh, mm. uh, procurement, all of these sorts of things, which might sound dry, but actually they're not at all dry if you define them in terms of, you know, social good purpose, employees' rights, yeah. increasing the economy, producing jobs, whatever it is you want to define it in that kind of way. I mean, I mean, there's, this, there's a certain amount of, of disappointment, I mean, globally around, around, around reforms. Make no mistake, we're talking about this in a very, but there's a lot of work. <laughs> there's a lot of... Uh, it's not uh, all perfect. No, uh, no, no. It's, no. it's uh, yeah. the situation in SOEs in Kenya, you know, we had some numbers that, you know, that the liabilities are 23% of GDP, you know, if you take the SOEs uh, of, of Africa, Africa, uh, in Kenya, if you take SOEs of, of SOEs, major uh, state-owned state enterprises, yep. sorry, state-owned enterprises, they represent a big chunk and they are bringing a lot of liabilities. And so therefore, at the moment, rather than contribute to economic development, they actually 
bringing down and and what these um, uh, what these um, situation is bringing is basically these um, recent events affecting the economy the pandemic are just just adding to that problem so and similar to the financial crisis when there was a, a sort of realization that you know governance of banks needed to be looked at but then there was an there was at the same time almost an acceptance oh we don't change the state we don't change too much the the ownership. We don't change the overall structure of this. Um, we just try to tinker a little bit around. And I don't think that's working. I, I, I don't think... So that's why a director in a board is following the company law. I mean, in a very simple way, um, whether it's Africa, whether it's uh, it's UK, they are following the company law. They have to adapt to the company law. The company law says you have to do the best for your shareholder. You have to do... To, to, or you could be sued, mm. effectively. So... That's the starting point of the British Academy project, but also in other countries, is to say we need to change that kind of mindset. The purpose of a company is to do good, you know, is to produce solutions to societal problems or societal challenges, you know, to address challenges. So if we kind of change that starting point, then everything else can start to follow. Yeah. Uh, Otherwise, we're kind of repeating the mistakes of the past. So the the interesting exam question goes, how do you change that mindset? And so, for example, um, climate crisis is upon us. It's going to be affecting Africa um, and many emerging economies in a greater way, but certainly going to affect us all, if not already. Um, uh, That question about sustainability as being an additional purpose and value that that people could be stating and acting towards as part of a kind of public good that you're working on i mean are there examples of where people have taken on that sort of agenda because i'm thinking about how you provoke that that mind shift that you were describing to even the the in order for the processes to then follow yeah i, I think this is the, the challenge that we have in in a sense of you know um is it the state? Is it government? Is it is it people? Is it is it is it does it require a change, a step change, legally speaking, if you want? I mean, one way of doing is, but then the system is quite quite uh, <laughs> it's quite resistant. Yes, to, to, they to always are. Yes, um, I think generally many have tried to adopt incremental approaches or let's add social uh, sustainability accounting to this or let's put more um, stakeholder in stakeholder engagement to the board so so in a sense there is there is a case for doing these incremental changes um the the concern i have is simply that that we don't have much time i think when it comes to climate change and whether the state's government should effectively just decree we should start your purpose should be about producing things profitably and sustainably uh, and you know with a minimum climate uh, you know emissions you know so something yeah. of that nature yes exactly which then forces i mean you know pe- people are particularly innovative once they are given a kind of direction you know how are you going to run this factory with a minimum climate emissions how do you run this factory taking into account the community around you uh, employing people from the community you know uh, allowing for diversity once these things kind of you know people have to try to find a solution yeah. yeah so could you have further examples Tanson, of that i mean i, I like, just like this idea of of defining business 
corporate activity, economic activity with a broad range of purposes as you've kind of started here, or, or even just to the starting point, say, what is the purpose? Mm-hmm. Well, by definition, it's more than just profit, but it's, it's, it's with a purpose in order to achieve profit and income and to make sure people are paid well and all of those sorts of things. So, so that kind of flow through sounds, mm. sounds very compelling and I like the idea of how that kind of comes about. Um, as you say, there are pressures to do things quickly. I mean, if you've got, as you were describing, Danson, a large youth population, then if you wait too long, then people are going to get unhappy about lack of jobs. They're going to be open to being captured by other kinds of ideas or just become discontent. So there's, there's always a kind of sense of urgency to do something mm. different and quickly, isn't there? Yes. Uh, I think um, uh, the point I want to make is that, one, um, corporate governance does not uh, operate in a vacuum, and therefore, um, uh, the, the, there are a lot of interrelationships between uh, the board of directors, for instance, and the outside environment. That could be uh, the government, uh, their, their customers, uh, suppliers, and their employees. So, in terms of where change would come from, or will continue, you know, originating from, I think uh, it's it's uh, multifold. Um, uh, the first um, source would be uh, educational training. I mean, we're seeing a lot of business schools, for instance, uh, integrating um, uh, climate change uh, uh, training or courses or uh, planning to integrate uh, uh, climate uh, change-related courses into their programs. I have sat uh, in AGMs as part of my previous research and was pleased to hear a shareholder um, ask about the uh, amount of uh, CSR investment that their company had made towards planting of trees in Kenya, which I think was commendable because I think traditionally shareholders have always thought of having um, a one-direction relationship with corporations that they always only expect or wait for the dividend at the end of the year. We're also seeing uh, in in uh, today's world as well. Uh, in UK, uh, there have been two companies where shareholders have actually uh, passed resolutions demanding that uh, the the com- their companies pay a living wage to uh, their workers. So I think um, uh, as society, as people become increasingly aware about what is important or what priorities they want to address, then uh, we will keep seeing meaningful change taking place that is driven by not just the rules that have been written down. Mm. Mm. So you're so you're you're hinting at kind of wider social change here to towards. To, towards be, more goods for more people um the the opposite side of that is what what's the what's the negative side that people resist change that actually they revert back to saying that money's the only measure that some of these good things that are happening uh become fine words but actually yeah. don't turn out to kind of have a significant impact um i'm trying to think of of negatives perhaps i've too optimistic as, a, as, a, as an outlook because I like the idea of this kind of widening of the way things yeah, are I, thought I, about. I, I agree. I think I think we we know there's been a lot of false starts. Also, it's not it's not as if it's the first time people have been trying to to, to challenge this. Um, I, I think in many ways that um, um, uh, companies uh, themselves are changing. Um, that, that you know 
they're going to SX business school or over business schools. They're coming. They're starting to hear this common message of sustainability and and all of this. So so I think it's it's becoming in the limelight. But the other thing, I mean, to, in our in our case, what we are trying to do is we say if we can at least get a few state-owned enterprises to pay attention. If we actually say, look, you need to think of this in a different way. We need to start working. If we can get the step change, people start looking, okay, this is this, this can be done or this could be done and this could be supported. So I think that also is, is important for us at our level to be able to demonstrate real-life cases of how this is. And that's why we want to see after a few, a few years what's happened to a company. And many people's ideas of of um, how countries are and how they work are formed by kind of ancient history, if I can put it that way. What what you might have learnt when you went somewhere 30 years ago or what you might have been taught in school at some distant point. But actually what's happening on the ground is changing extremely rapidly. Mm, yeah. I mean, solar panels in Kenya, in villages, widespread. Um, now major source of electrification isn't it solar power um, so renewables in in some emerging economies are much more successful in electricity supply than in many industrialized countries who are hooked onto other ways mm. in this case kind of fossil fuel ways of, mm. of working mm. so it could be that that there's opportunity for, to, to leap a couple of stages yeah. if we can put it in that way i know development doesn't work by stages but 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 there's the opportunity to to leap into kind of completely new areas if you can get these kind of definitions of purpose and action and yeah. pr principles right in the first first place what give us a kind of couple more examples of where you would point towards either exemplar countries or sectors where where you would say well that's very interesting what's happening there well, I, I think in, in the case of Mauritius, I think is one of the examples where where it has gone through this early periods of adopting all these standards in a rather quick and, you know, kind of tick the box type of way. And then I was myself quite amazed when, when it went through a, a, re, a revamp in 2016. And then, and then, you know, I kind of contributed to the development of a scorecard and where suddenly all all the um, uh, company directors were there and saying yes we will we will commit to this we will try to change things we was unheard of i mean Wonderful. It, 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 mm. 10 years ago they wouldn't be there or they would say oh we, we, you know uh, corporate governance that's none of your business you know that would be the classic kind of in, not only mauritius but very you know business is not it's not your business it's my business it's my shareholders my family or business and therefore it doesn't concern you to a situation where now they are actually debating about scorecards how to improve a board how to improve how to be able to show in a year's time what they are going to do differently so it it does have kind of this is an example of I think where I, I, I didn't think I would see it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So that's really interesting, Tanson. Any any further examples from your experience? Yes, uh, yeah. Just um, I want to add slightly to what Tivin has said. In I think one interesting development that I've observed, uh, and especially so in Africa, is um, I mean a lot of uh, interest locally to uh, develop new codes of corporate governance. Uh, you to see in Kenya, for instance, there's a corporate governance code for family-owned businesses, um, uh, the listed companies at the Nairobi Stock Exchange, there's a corporate governance code to guide the governance of state-owned corporations. So this compared to the early 2000s where uh, most of the 
uh, corporate governance initiatives were so much driven by outsiders, the, the World Bank and the IMF. And the, uh, those efforts met uh, with a lot of resistance where uh, people, there were a lot of suspicions. And uh, um, one of my interviews told me that they thought uh, the alien concept of corporate governance was thought of as being a strategy by foreigners to... Uh, who are targeting the juicy sectors of the economy and telling people do these, privatize these, uh, you should list these companies so that they can then come and buy them. But now we have seen a, a shift from that mindset. People have been more open to corporate governance. Uh, countries having multiple corporate governance codes that are locally driven. Uh, in Ghana, for instance, we're involved in the development of a corporate governance, a purely local and very proactive uh, exercise. And the a lot of people are very keen and interested, as opposed to the past where they had been to they had they had to be coerced by the World Bank, especially maybe uh, or other international organisations, withholding aid. So that's one point. Uh, the second point is I'm also pleased to see that there's uh, more appreciation of the fact that countries have got different needs and experiences. And that um, um, a universal corporate governance model is n no longer sustainable, that whatever may work in the UK may not necessarily achieve the same success in Kenya, in Mauritius, in South Africa. Uh, for instance, uh, we have um, more young people in Kenya and we see uh, the, uh, the, the dimension that the government through the state-owned corporations have uh, integrated into their governance practices, that the board have a clear policy that 30% of our tenders have to go to women and young people. So in the UK, for instance, we don't have a big proportion of the population being people under 35 as we were in Kenya. So uh, I'm seeing countries tailoring corporate governance aspirations to uh, be able to solve or assist with their immediate needs. Um, the second point uh, that I wanted to add is that um, by allowing uh, locally driven corporate gov governance initiatives, that also helps to um, make sure that um, there is a risk if you have, if you apply a universal set of corporate governance uh, model or code in that what may be perceived as development in one country or one context may not always be uh, interpreted in that way. So multinational companies, let's say, moving to Africa to uh, operate in the lumber industry or mining industry may clear up trees in order to set up large factories. But some of those trees may be sacred to the local communities and therefore what may be viewed as development may not always be interpreted by the local people. So, And that's why I think having local people um, take the driving seat or um, lead the corporate governance efforts has really helped with making sure that they, they are the right corporate governance policies in place and that they will also be accepted by the local population. Very interesting. And and we've moved. So for 30 years plus, the World Bank was involved in structural adjustment policies in emerging economies. Um, uh, a huge amount of money lent, but then even more of it paid back mm -hmm. and still has not paid back the principal. It's still it's kind of 300 billion, I think, or something of the, from those 500 programs. So you can see why that has a big effect on people because they're thinking 
these world banks and others are coming in to to change things in the end for the worse. They have an economic model that they're following, strictly following, and it's going to be bad for us. But what you're describing is something that's now beginning to kind of flower on the outside of those that 30 years of impact, something completely new that's mm. kind of coming about. Could you just then let's close with a, a kind of couple of kind of hopes and priorities for the for the future for the next kind of let's say five years what what would you be saying uh so not predictions but you know what would you hope that either can be continue to work in this way or might begin to happen in a new way Stephen, um, have a go yeah i think uh, reflecting from the uh, work we're doing with the ghanaian uh, development i mean it was interesting that um, they thought a lot about the informal sector also so it was a thinking, although not easy, but thinking how we can also help the informal sector. We're not going to impose detailed corporate governance rules, but then basic, you know, how to do your, improve your business, how to improve the way you run the business. So that was quite unusual, I think. That uh, And I think that's something for the future because we have to remember that a large part of business in Africa is basically informal business, small businesses. So we, we're trying to see how we can apply those ideas, get those principles also to that level. So that would be one thing that, that I'd like to see perhaps much more than we have done in the past. Yeah. Um, so, so the research and everything has been focusing so much on listed companies, which is the tiny, tiny proportion of a whole African kind of uh, yeah. b- business. The other uh, thing I, I, I think working on this project with, with Kenya is really to see how can we um, state-owned enterprises? Because now, we've, I mean, it, it's got a realization how far state-owned enterprises in, in, in Africa are quite central to people's lives. I think, again, we're we kind of too much sidestepping, you know, uh, looking at other types of institutions. So, t- t- from my view, is that it's how we can get this project to, to, to get state-owned enterprises, government, as the owner, eventually, to pay attention to this and see how they can achieve a, a situation which is win-win for everyone you know uh, lower deficits lower liabilities better services more jobs more popular government yeah. m- you know more jobs you know all this would, would would come out of this but i think it's it's kind of been been somehow sidestepped you know mm, great danton priority from you for the future or i hope even right thank you uh, i think um uh, again Based on the project that we are doing in Kenya and um, knowing the value that uh, the state-owned corporations can bring to the country, I I really hope that um, we will be able to uh, look back in five years' time and see that uh, our project is making meaningful or has made a meaningful contribution. I'm saying that because there is both this the uh, the, the apparent uh, benefits from governance of state-owned corporations uh, could be maybe better bottom line, but even the unseen, the less apparent, that is when you have over 300 or over 200 government-owned corporations. I mean, that's bigger than uh, uh, some of the blue-chip companies uh, uh, listed on the Nairobi Stock Exchange. And if there's a way of uh, contributing to them being able to run more efficiently and not perennially keep going back to the treasury to ask for financial support because they're insolvent, I think that would be something I would be very proud of. And then uh, those monies can go to helping uh, the society uh, connect more homes to 
water and women don't have to walk long distances and children to fetch water and maybe uh, provide more educational opportunities for young children. I think, I hope uh, my corporate governance work or our corporate governance work will be able to contribute towards that. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Danson Kimani, Tevin Subarayan from the Essex Business School. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you. you very much. That was Louder Than Words. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. Have a look at the website for more information and do rate the pod if you can. <laughs>